Welcome to the Clifford Chance podcast, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. This episode features a live recording of Clifford Chance's senior partner, Jeroen Auerhand, in conversation with a panel of experts looking at the rise of populism internationally, and specifically across Europe, whether the process of European integration is likely to be impacted over the coming years, and the significance that would have in Europe and more broadly. On the panel is Nouriel Rubini, a professor at the Stern Business School in New York. Professor Rubini is a leading economist and co-founder of Rosa and Rubini Associates. He joined Jeroen earlier this year at the World Economic Forum in Davos for a discussion on whether we're approaching a new global crisis. Some of these global issues the panel continue to discuss in this episode. Joining the conversation is Brunello Rosa, CEO and Head of Research at Rosa and Rubini Associates, as well as Research Associate at the London School of Economics. Joining from Clifford Chance is Jessica Gladstone, Partner in International Law and Disputes and member of our Global Trade and Investment Risk Team, and Clifford Chance's own expert in EU integration, Michelle Petit, the former Director General of the European Commission's Legal Service. The discussion is chaired by Jeroen Auerhand. So obviously we're going to be talking about uh, the rise of populism and its effect on European disintegration potentially. Um, I noticed in a research paper from March 2019 you wrote EU update awaiting the populist tsunami. Uh, so we'll talk in a minute whether that is indeed what is happening or has happened. But before we go there, Professor Rubini, obviously populism, and we hear a lot in, about it, is not an EU phenomenon. It is more, it is a global phenomenon. And maybe you can give us some of your views as to the sort of causes for this, you know, economic or, or, or um, anti-establishment. What do you see as the key reasons that we see this happening? <coughs> uh, well, I would say, first of all, uh, as you pointed out, uh, this is more of a global phenomenon. In the last few years, we've seen a bit of a populist backlash against uh, globalization, against trade, against migration of labor, even restrictions of uh, movements of capital, like, you know, resenting foreign FDI. And there's also a backlash against uh, supranational authorities, whether it's the EU or the IMF or WTO. And the final element of it is also a backlash against technological innovation, digitalization, that is essentially crowding out uh, different people. Now, I would expect that most of the people in this crowd, like myself, as economists, we believe that actually globalization, technological innovation is good. But even economists uh, realize that uh, they're winners and they're losers. Some people are better off and some people are worse off. And what has happened in the last few years, and that has led uh, part of this rise in populism, is that uh, those that were in the top uh, of the distribution of skills, of labor, of human capital, and so on, have done well, while other people have been left behind. And there's been also an increase in income and wealth inequality. Now, an economist would tell you that the right policy response is not to have a restriction to trade in goods and services, to capital, to labor, technology, or try to stop technological innovation. The right response would be provide uh, people with the skills to survive and thrive in a globalized digital economy, but that's easier said than done. And that's the challenge we're facing, I would say, not just in Europe and globally. And that's why, while uh, this phenomenon of a backlash against globalization and populism is uh, evident in a number of advanced economies, I would say the election of Donald Trump in the United States, the Brexit vote uh, in the case of the UK, Salvini, Di Maio, and the populists being in power in Italy, 
Uh, we're also seeing this rise of populist parties not yet in power uh, in places like France, in Germany, Sweden, Netherlands, and parts of Europe. And, uh, and it's not just a phenomenon, I would say, that is only in uh, advanced economies. You see variants of essentially strong men, mostly strong men. You don't find uh, women that are populist in power yet. But um, in liberal states, strong men who are populist to different degrees uh, coming to power also in emerging markets. You know, we have Putin in Russia. Uh, we have Erdogan in Turkey. We have Orban in Hungary. We have uh, Maduro, of course, in Venezuela. We have Duterte in the Philippines. We have Bolsonaro in Brazil. Uh, President Xi Jinping in China. And even in, in places like India, uh, Modi has some authoritarian streaks. So it seems like this is a phenomenon which we have taken for granted, liberal democracy. But right now people are disillusioned with liberal democracy, in part because, because they're disillusioned, as you pointed out, against the establishment parties. And now the established parties are losing power. And you have radical populist parties of extreme right or extreme left coming to power. Part of it is, of course, socioeconomic. If you are threatened by trade, by migration, by technology, and you push back against it, and you become economically nationalist, and you blame, of course, the foreigners and migrants and technology for the fact that you are left behind. But some of it is not also economic. You know, in many parts of Europe, in rural areas where no one has ever seen a migrant, uh, people actually, like in eastern parts of, uh, of Germany or some parts of rural areas of, uh, of the UK, um, people are against migration, against Europe and so on. So there is also an element of identity. You know, I'm German, I'm Italian, I'm Brit, uh, I'm English, and I'm losing my identity, whether it's uh, cultural identity, ethnic identity, of course, religious identity, one sort or another. So there is a socioeconomic component of it, but there is also an element of wanting to maintain some degree of sovereignty about uh, your own existence that, of course, uh, digitalization and globalization is a threat to you. So I would say it's a, it's a complex set of different things. Well, we're talking about liberal democracy. We, of course, all read uh, Putin's comments at the G20 that liberal democracy was sort of dead. I felt personally it was sort of a comeback to Fukuyama's end of history, and now it was his turn to say liberal democracy was dead, whereas in my view he made a caricature of what liberal democracy stands for. But that's okay. an aside. If we go to the EU, uh, uh, Michelle, we've heard various reasons, you know, underlying causes for populism, one of them being economic. Do you think in the EU, where we've got this whole issue about, uh, you know, uh, uh, transfer of, of wealth, etc. Is that the key reason for populism in Europe? Well, <coughs> rise of populism, uh, rise of what exactly? Uh, that's a, a question I asked to myself uh, right from the beginning. Are we talking of populism or of nationalism or of extreme right or indeed extreme left or Euroscepticism. In Europe, all this is uh, slightly mixed in a way. Uh, so that's the first, I think, element uh, which you've just uh, emphasized, Professor, uh, that it is a complex factor and which fuels nationalism, which is probably uh, the really daunting element of, of, of all of it. Second, I, I think there is no, uh, no, there's not a single populism in, in Europe. Uh, first of all, it has always been around. It has always been around. Uh, in the 70s, in the 80s, we were talking about eurosclerosis. That was the word at the, that was the word at the time. 
but it was the same phenomenon. Uh, we've had Mr. Berlusconi for many years before Mr. Salvini. Uh, Mr. Tsipras was viewed as a populist and then not anymore. Uh, so populism in, uh, in governments of the member states has always had its ups and downs. And uh, in many ways it is probably triggered by the history of Europe, which is extremely complex. The same uh, populism, uh, the populism is not the same at all in Poland and in France. Uh, they are rooted in, in very different grounds and, uh, and historical past in a way. So uh, we often tend to make it a blog, but in fact it's a very diverse history which usually explains uh, most of these uh, differences. Now, on, on the causes of populism, I, I think uh, I won't uh, add much to what the professor just said. I think it's entirely right. It's mostly uh, social economic. Uh, if you take the geography of uh, elections in France, you mainly have rural areas versus cities. Uh, the geography of Brexit is also very telling. Uh, one element which is very uh, specific to Europe, I think, is the huge responsibility of uh, governments, including absolutely non-populist government. But you can hardly say each day of the week that everything which is wrong and bad has been decided in Brussels and what is good is decided by yourself. And suddenly on a Sunday, ask everybody to vote for Europe. There is something there which simply has uh, led to the situation where the UK in particular finds itself, but not only. Uh, governments in France, which you would not certainly identify as populists, have done this recurrently, and that has led to uh, the referendum of 2005, lost in France, uh, at, at, at great surprise. So, this is uh, a, a very specific element of Euro in Europe, uh, the use made by government of Brussels. Now, on populist uh, parties, just uh, a slight point. They also change. Uh, typically in France, three years ago, the Front National was ready to leave the Euro, the Union, comes the elections, they have bad result in the presidential, and their, their position is completely changed. Now, they are saying what many uh, absolutely normal parties have been saying all along, often, we are pro-European, but we want a different Europe, which is an extremely damaging position to take because it's very hard to combat in a way. So these populist parties are also on the move. And uh, the Front National is now saying, well, uh, we should absolutely not leave the Union. That was two years ago, but not now, not anymore. And I understand in the, in the Eastern countries, it's also exactly the same. I mean, if you will come back to that, but people like Orban are adamant to stay in the European Union. So, it's uh, a few words, uh, but Jessica, on, uh, on, on Brexit, 
uh, that was also an experience, really sort of straight from, uh, from numbers and from, uh, it was a test, sort of almost a textbook, textbook case. Yeah, I think that's, that's fair. For all the reasons that you and Uriel have explained, I mean, you know, multiple causes, probably multiple causes in each individual voter as driving a leave vote um, <coughs> in, in so many. Um, but, but what's interesting to see is, you know, how that is playing out, how that has played out so far, and how that may play out in the future in terms of practically what is done and delivered by government because of course that's all yet to be seen I mean even if we characterise and I think rightly the Brexit vote is a populist vote um, does that necessarily make Theresa May's government a populist government and sometimes it sounded like it if you look back at the October 2016 conference speech she that was the famous citizens of nowhere. If you think you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. Um, and talking about giving people back control over their lives um, and making sure that this will become a country that works not just for the privileged few, but for everybody. Um, a different sort of language that, than that that we've heard from conservative leaders in some time. So, you know, there are some indications in the speech on occasion, but when you see what's actually sort of delivered, little other than Brexit, because it's so time-consuming, there's not much time to address some of those underlying causes, some of those um, deep policy issues that might sort of show a a broader commitment to the um, populist agenda. Um, And with Brexit, of course, where we are now, a, a compromise that was... Um, gained little support from either direction on either side of the debate um, so sort of quite, quite difficult to see where you go from there also with the, with the language um, around um, global Britain that came out as a description of what the Brexit vote stood for it stood for not just being tied to Europe but being part of Britain taking control of its destiny as global Britain, which is a sort of branding that came, came about with it. I'm not sure, um, you know, which represents all the, all the um, free trade deals that the UK was going to do with the rest of the world and not just be linked to, to the EU. Um, but I'm not sure that that would have been a sort of forefront of people's minds standing in the ballot box in June 2016. So it's, a, it's an interpretation that, that got sort of packaged with what vote leave meant. Um, but, you know, again, it's sort of cu- counter to the anti-globalisation theme that, that was perhaps driving the sentiment behind that vote. Um, next, we have, if the polls have got it right this time, um, Boris Johnson in number 10. And he's not someone to shy away from populist talk. Um, it'll be interesting to see then if he's prepared to walk the walk that goes with that and how that looks in practice in his um, days in, in first days in number 10. Um, it's easier, of course, when you're not actually um, in charge. It's easier then to expound the populist um, sentiments and say, say the right things that speak to the populist movements. 
it's harder where your theory gets tested by reality when you're actually um, you know, signing off on the policies that actually are getting delivered and the legislation that's actually um, going to take effect. Thank you, Jessica. I mean, on Brexit, and I know we could spend the whole day talking about Brexit, and you've probably done, that, done, done quite a lot of that, but what I find interesting goes to your point, Michelle. I mean, it's almost a backlash for some populists in a way, Brexit, because how difficult it is. And, and mm-hmm. we've had a discussion about this before, Professor Rubini and I. You know, is it Britain the first country jumping ship, or is it actually contrary to that? And I think what we're experiencing in continental Europe, the whole talk about Brexit and Nexit, which is the Netherlands, and, and Grexit is all gone, as you just said. That's not a very popular theme. Like in France, you don't, talk, you don't hear that uh, anymore. But it does beg the question whether other developments in Europe you know, are in favour, are favouring populists. Do they have time on their side? Because you know, if we are, like, like some predict, you know, heading for potentially another real downturn or a crisis in 2020, are the populists going to be a bit more in the backseat and be able to blame others for that? And I wonder, <coughs> Professor Rubini, how you feel, and if you look now, and we saw the slide a moment ago of the five sort of new leaders in, in Europe after the musical chairs which we saw last week. Uh, Ursula von Leyen, for example, is known as very pro-Europe. You know, you hear the words federalist, etc. around her. Um, so if with her we might be going towards more EU integration, you know, is that the solution or part of the problem, in fact, if you look at that? Um, well, um, I think those are important questions that are actually core to what's going to happen the future of the Eurozone and the future of the European Union. Uh, I would say the, the glasses are full and half empty. If you want to take the positive spin, you would say uh, the populists did a little bit less uh, well than expected, only one quarter of the votes and MPs, uh, first of all. Um, and secondly, uh, now you have essentially these five leaders and the new leaders of the uh, European Union that are looking, all of them, relatively heavyweight which would have had a bunch of lightweights, while Lagarde or people like Van der Leyen are certainly heavyweight, Borrell and so on. That's one good news. And the second good news about it is also that uh, uh, they seem to be, to different degrees, all of them quite uh, pro-Europe and pro-Eurozone. Um, in the case of the European Parliament, for the first half, is going to be uh, this Italian, Sassoli. The second half is likely that Weber that uh, didn't get the position of uh, head of the commission might be it's a little bit more of somebody who has been uh, more Eurosceptic has been playing uh, friendly with people like Orban and so on but I would say you get at least four and a half out of five that are pro-European I think that the issue is not whether you have people that are pro-European but what's the realistic uh, prospects for greater one Eurozone integration and for European integration and as you pointed out, the question is, is it the solution or is it part of the problem? Now, on the Eurozone, I would say that right now that the policies uh, and the proposals that come from France, the periphery, for more Eurozone integration, a full monetary union, banking union, capital markets union, fiscal union, transfer union, eventually political union, uh, are not going to go anywhere. And the Germans essentially are saying and pushing back, looking at what happened, for example, in Italy, and they say, if we have more resharing, like with Eurobonds, that's reshifting. We have more of a fiscal union because more of a transfer union. And until I have trusted that Italy and other countries in the periphery, including also France, have done enough austerity so that debts, private and public, are sustainable. Two, that they've done enough reforms so their potential growth is higher and are converging towards Germany rather than diverging. 
federal restraining is shifting, and that's now be something that is acceptable politically, because it means that the German taxpayer is going to take the burden of these countries eventually going bankrupt. So, unfortunately, I would say any meaningful progress, even the minimal proposals that Macron had on the table about having greater Eurozone integration, are not going to go anywhere. And the political calendar is 2021 election in Germany, 2022 in France. So there's not going to be much progress. Now, the Germans are saying this is not a problem. The current essentially muddled through partial integration is okay. It's a stable equilibrium. Uh, we can always muddle through. And we cannot integrate more because it's too risky politically for us and for the core. Other people believe that this is not a stable equilibrium. It's an unstable equilibrium. And uh, unless and historical, if you look at any historical examples, monetary union where you have a common currency without eventually fiscal union, banking union, and rich sharing, and even political union, they've all collapsed. There are historical examples. Now, one scenario is that it's going gonna, it's gonna to collapse, right? Once, uh, and when it's going to collapse, when you have the next uh, U.S. and global financial crisis or next recession, because in the recession there will be an economic downturn, uh, Germany and part of the core is going to do well, the periphery like Italy is going to do even worse, and therefore there would be a temptation then to exit. And uh, I would say the weak link probably in the Eurozone right now is actually Italy. Italy because it's the one that is worse off. If it's a small country like Cyprus leaving, who cares? Uh, Greece decided not to leave, and now they've changed also politically, gone towards new democracy. So I would say if the Eurozone survives, depends uh, key on what happens in France. Because if Italy leaves, it's a mess for the Eurozone, but you could think about the rest being fence as long as France remains part of the core, because France part of the core means that then Spain and Portugal remain part of the core, as they've done austerity and reform, and you could have a Eurozone without Italy. It'll be a messy thing, there'll be defaults, there'll be lots of ugly stuff happening, but you have OMT, you can fence everybody else, and then you have a survival of the Eurozone. If instead the France were to go populist, then, uh, then without France, essentially, you have the Eurozone collapsing, maybe Germany and the core forms its own northern Eurozone, but then the rest of it is going to be falling apart, and so on. Now, I just spent three or four days in France, and the conventional wisdom is that while Macron has made many mistakes, uh, uh, there's no real political opposition against him. The establishments like socialists and republicans are semi-dead. Uh, Belanchon on the extreme left is not going to go anywhere. And while Marine Le Pen is quite popular um, in the next election, 2022, she's not going to get, essentially, a majority. Uh, there's not enough of economic malaise in France, in spite of the Gilets jaunes and so on, for, the, for that happening. Now, if you take that scenario, then I would say, if France is safe, then the question is what happens uh, if Italy gets in trouble in the next recession in the Eurozone, and there's already been a recession in the Eurozone, could be the trigger for that happening. So the Eurozone could survive even in a modified form, uh, but if the shock is big enough and you have a severe global recession, it's not obvious what's going to happen, I would say. Uh, some people say the Germans, like the last time around, are going to wait. They're not going to do a resharing before there is a crisis. But once there is a crisis, they're going to realize that if the Eurozone is destroyed, they have to go in the direction of resharing, like they did the last time around, accepting QE, accepting ESM, accepting OMT. But they're going to expose them to whatever it takes to make sure that the Eurozone sticks together. So whether that's going to work or not, uh, I don't know. On the European integration, I would say, uh, and that's a partly positive, partly normative, we're not going to have a full federalist Europe, and that's politically impossible. 
Uh, people say that uh, until now you've had a bunch of bureaucrats in Brussels that are not being elected by anybody who are running the show. And the only way to make more popular Europe to the European is to provide uh, European-wide public goods that people care about. People care about migration. People care about security and making sure there are no terrorists. People care about uh, uh, law and order. People care maybe about some other global uh, European-wide public goods like infrastructure and so on and so on. So you could have a model in which on one side you have more European public goods that implies more integration on one side, but on the other side there is also some element of subsidiarity. Because, you know, I go to Poland and I go to Hungary and other places like this, and they say on the social issues we cannot accept what Europe wants, right? Whether it's abortion or gay rights or other types of things that are more cultural, everything with sovereignty. So maybe you can find a combination of things in which are providing really things that people care about, that means more integration, and you have some degree of national sovereignty about stuff that is cultural, that is more societal, and then you keep the Eurozone, uh, the European Union together and so on. Final observation I'll make on this context is the following one. Uh, Brunello was talking about the external threats to the, to the Eurozone in Europe. I think those are important because in the world you have essentially three major powers. One is U.S. under Trump, and unfortunately he may get re-elected. And even if he's not re-elected, the attitude of the U.S. towards Europe are going to change. They're going to say enough of just free riding on us, whether it's on NATO or other things. So you have one power, the United States, is becoming more Eurosceptic. You have Russia, that is a weak power, revisionist, but is still militarily powerful, that wants having disintegration of Europe, divided the emperor. And then you have also another power, China, that doesn't want to have disintegration of Europe, but would like to have a weak Europe where they can go to Italy and say, join the BRI. They can go to the 16 countries in Eastern Europe and say, let's do our BRI and have our infrastructures. So you have three major global powers, two that are still strong. One is weak, like Russia, but quite aggressive. They prefer a Europe that is not integrated, a Europe that is uh, divided, because divided the imperial. Even the U.S. would say, listen, I don't want the European to tell me what to do on trade policy, on regulation, on technology, on a whole bunch of global affairs, let alone geopolitical one. So if Europe is weak or fragile, and therefore I can divide them and control them, that's better than having a strong Europe. I think it's a narrow-minded view of the world, because, of course, uh, if you have a weak Europe that is disintegrating, eventually you have one of your main allies that you need in order to fight China or fight Russia. That's not on your side, but that's the view. And the fourth threat to Europe comes not just from Russia, from the U.S. and from China, but also what's happening in the Middle East and North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, where, as he pointed out, uh, Brunello, if you're going to have global climate change, if you're going to have desertification, if you're going to have collapse of agriculture and economic activity, you're going to have not one million people, not five million people, potentially you have dozens of millions of people, they're going to try to go somewhere else. And the Mediterranean, it's easy to cross. So that's going to be a threat as well to Europe. So if you have these four major threats to Europe and you don't have greater integration over time of Europe, because Europe is never going to become a federal state like the United States, can over time, over the next 10 to 20 years, uh, Eurozone and Europe survive if you're not a global power the way other powers are, that are unitary state. That's a major existential threat to Europe as well. Wow. Um, four big external threats. Internal threats you also spoke about. And by the sign of it, Mr. Rubini, it's much is going to depend on Macron and uh, Marie Le Pen. If, if that goes wrong in that sense, we're in real trouble. And then 
Brunello, I mean, you spoke about either you know, muddling through or you know, breaking up in clusters or these concentric circles. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about that, and you also mentioned the UK in that, in that context, yes. I found interesting. No, more, more than happy to expand a bit more on the concentric circles. So, the idea now is that all <coughs> European countries to, should converge towards a never closer union. That's the idea. So, this, the direction of travel is the same for everyone, but everybody can get there somehow at his own speed. I think this idea is somehow outdated. It doesn't work. People want a, direct, a different direction of travel. People want, some countries want to stay just in a certain set of um, agreements with others. They don't want to go further in some circumstances. Somebody was very happy to adopt the euro. Others will never adopt the euro. The Polish, the Swedes, the Brits, of course, they will never adopt it. So why forcing them in a situation where they have to go there? Why don't we reorganize them in a, in a set of concentric circles that are redefined? In the Eurozone, for example, when we had the Greek crisis, what we found that was extremely complicated is that Greece, even if they wanted to leave, they had to leave the EU and, uh, in order to leave the Eurozone. But that had major geopolitical consequences that they weren't willing and able to take at that time. So um, you need to find a mechanism by which countries might want to leave the Eurozone because they feel that the Euro is not good for them while remaining in the EU. Equally, countries should be able to leave the EU in an orderly fashion while remaining with some form of association with the EU that can take any different form, trade agreements or whatever. That could be the case for the UK or for countries that are not part of the EU and will never be part of the EU, such as Ukraine. They can f have some form of association with the EU without threatening Russia that we will bring Ukraine within the EU. That would cause trouble. Let's not forget that uh, we also told the Russians that we will never have the Baltics in NATO and here they are. And so this has caused all sorts of trouble. My point on this, and this is only external organization, internally is also very important that we create those transfer unions that I mentioned before. Because let's just make, make very clear about this. There are internal uh, fiscal implicit transfers, if you want, from the periphery to the core via internal migrations. People educated... Uh, in Italy, in Spain, and the countries have um, uh, um, spent on health care and education and so on, these people. And then when these people leave and go to Germany or the UK and so on, this is a fiscal transfer. It's just not explicit. You don't see it, but it's there. It's estimated to be around 200,000 euros per person leaving. We are talking of, uh, of tens of thousands leaving Italy and Spain per year. So you have to recognize those transfer and uh, find a way of compensating those countries in, in order to have a circulation of, if you want, fiscal resources as opposed to be just from the periphery uh, to the core. Now, this is somehow, there's an element of being normative in this. Fair enough. When the analysis comes, imagine what is the economic, financial, and political costs of going from where we are now to where we should be somehow. It's enormous. 
who's going to take that course? I don't think anyone now in Europe wants to go there. Hence, you have this muddle through. I mean, Macron has gone some way in that direction, but he got almost nothing. In June last year, he was supposed to get something from Germany in exchange for the reforms he has made on the labor market and now pension, unemployment insurance, and university training, and all the rest. And he got nothing. So that's why he got discouraged. So when we move from the sort of normative where we would like to be, what would be advisable to be for the Eurozone and Europe to survive, to the analytical point, the positive argument, we think it's extremely hard to get there. That's why you, you are in a muddle through, and that opens up, being in an unstable equilibrium, the possibility of slipping into a negative scenario in which instead you go into clusters. It's interesting when you talk about those, these, the circles, I was thinking in a way, you know, we have the framework for that, because we have the Eurozone, we have the Schengen area, we have the European economic it's area, so it's not a, you know, it, it, is, it is working on that and expanding that, Ukraine, we have an association agreement which led to a referendum in the Netherlands, unhelpfully, uh, but that, that exists. I mean, it's interesting, Jessica, if you look at countervailing sort of movements, on the one hand, you know, you're dealing with Brexit and, you know, you advise a lot on Brexit and that's actually stepping out of a trade deal in a way and you have to advise on that. At the same time, you read in the newspaper this week, the EU, after 20 years, I think almost on the day, have entered into a trade agreement, the Mercosur one. So that's sort of different. And, and how do you navigate through that? And, and, and you know, particularly if you look at the cluster approach, the balkanization, if that's what happened, you know, that, that, that is going to be a huge challenge for business. How, how do you see mm. this? Well, I, um, you're exactly right. And I think the, you know, business will survive. It will have to reassess the landscape every time there is a seismic shift like the ones we're talking about and um, adapt so that it can still be as um, uh, sort of optimal in the way that it functions and the way that it deals cross-border as is possible in the new world environment that it finds itself in. And that will be different for everyone because each company will have a different set of customers, a different supply chain, um, you know, different business plans for what they were hoping to do next or which parts of the world seemed most accessible. And the reality is that these things, these things change and they can change very quickly. So we've seen with, you know, US tariffs imposed on Chinese goods overnight. You know, sometimes it can happen very, very quickly. But, you know, where there is a, um, a, a policy like that, an ad hoc uh, sort of change, that's where there's also loopholes, um, by which I mean in sort of the broader sense, you know, there are ways around the problems or the barriers that spring up. Um, and so, you know, business will need to adapt to find um, what it means under a new trade deal, or, you know, if there is, if, if it's difficult doing business from China to the US, where you can relocate and to what degree you need to relocate, how much substance do you need in another jurisdiction? You know, is it enough that you package there? Um, is it enough that you, you know, have a small presence there? Or how much of your product needs to genuinely originate from somewhere else in order to meet the terms of the trade agreements that might be available to you? Um, and so it is, it's, there's, it's quite a sort of a web of... Um, different considerations because of course on top of that you've got to put all the tax considerations and the other commercial considerations of making <coughs> significant changes to your business and you have to come up with a, a route through that makes the most sense for your business that's why I say it's different for everybody 
And on top of that, which is a completely different topic, the complication of data and where data can be held and data Absolutely. localization comes on Absolutely. top of all of that. Yeah, if I could add just one point on this issue of balkanization, because uh, the risk of balkanization is not only within Europe, because right now the biggest looming uh, threat to the global economy is the beginning of this new Cold War between US and China. Is in part a trade war, is in part a technology war, the Huawei case, and in part is also a geopolitical rivalry that's rising between a rising power and existing power, the old uh, Thucydides trap. Now, suppose that this truce doesn't lead the deal, but leads to as actually an escalation of this trade, tech, and cold war between US and China, then at some point this could be the beginning of deglobalization of the global economy, of balkanization, not just of uh, tech uh, supply chains, but of manufacturing more general, and it could be the beginning of a decoupling also between US and China. But the problem is going to be at that point that uh, countries in the middle, whether it's Europe or Middle East or Asia, will have to choose because US and China are going to say either it's my 5G or their 5G, is my uh, AI or their AI, is my essential industry of the future or yours. And right now, paradoxically, Many countries that are allies of the uh, United States, whether in Europe or in Asia, other parts of the world, are doing more trade and investment with China than the United States. So the countries in the middle are going to be actually squeezed by this balkanization of the global economy. It's not going to be very easy to say, I stay, uh, not to say, and do good business with both. Now, if Europe was united and had its own defense policy, foreign policy, trade policy, regulatory policy, with that, the leverage to go and tell the rest of the world, the Chinese and the Americans, you cannot impose your will on me. Or let's find, to find a new global order, where even if there is a rivalry, we're not destroying the global trading, economic, and financial system. But if Europe is divided, or is weak, <coughs> it cannot play that leadership role, and therefore becomes a problem. But, Professor, I, I think you've just described the job of the five yeah. proposed people. Yeah. Uh, those huge subjects which are at the center. Now, what, I'm, what you just mentioned, Jehun, is that I'm encouraged by the fact that, that your positive scenario, the concentric circle, is exactly where we stand now in Europe. And where we have been for years. Uh, there is a Eurozone circle, there is a Schengen circle, each with their own intrinsic problems. The Eurozone will have to deal with its strengthening. We know it's, an, it's a monetary, but not very much an economic government at all. That's its weakness. Uh, Schengen means a unified visa policy, asylum policy, immigration policy, because you have only external borders. So that's another circle. So all these circles exist and institutionally are pretty solid. Now, you pose to this the risk of clusters, and I see that. But again, from inside, I mean, clusters have always existed within Europe. You always have had clusters of member states which are pro-environment and some others which are less pro-environment. Uh, which have a certain policy on immigration and some others have another. Uh, some do a lot of fisheries and some don't. Uh, you even have sometimes an opposition between the large member states and the small member states for reasons of weight of power within the council, for example. 
all these clusters exist and play around, but the charm is that none is consistent. They change depending on the subject. So they are not stable, these clusters, and hopefully they will stay uh, unstable. One of the uh, magic around uh, this system is, of course, the qualified majority voting in council. These clusters would be daunting at unanimity because on each subject you could block. At present, you have clusters depending on the subject and, and they reconstitute if you come back to the same subject. But in fact, they do not turn out into a disintegration and I don't think they will. I don't think they will. I think the institutions are pretty stable. Uh, Eurozone will face its own problems. Schengen also. And the external circle also exists. You have this uh, agreement with Norway, which is very strong. Norway, Iceland, and Liechtenstein. Then you have all these networks of trade agreements. You have a special status for the exceeding member states. And despite the threat of dismantling, at present, the problem, I think, which we will meet in Europe is rather a problem of new accessions of member states. Albania. What do we do with Albania? It's already a big issue in many member states. Serbia. Uh, they are all exceeding members in negotiation for accession. Eurozone. Croatia has just uh, asked to join. Bulgaria as well. So the move is not necessarily in towards the outside. I mean, people want to join rather than want to leave, as far as I see. Probably as a, also a sort of feedback of, of Brexit, in, in a way, many people, as we've said right at the beginning, uh, have completely forgotten the, the sort of policy of let's leave. Where are they? Everybody was thinking that Poland, Hungary will immediately follow suit. They immediately said, we stay. So, uh, there is, uh, I think, a feeling that Europe, in a way, has to stay from a political point of view for all the reasons you mentioned. Member states, I think, realize that without the Union, there are almost nothing on the world stage. So, uh, when Greece's problem was maximum, there was no way Greece would, would leave, basically. Be between the major politicians, it was always clear that Greece had to stay in the euro. It would be such a precedent that you don't allow it. And uh, my expectation is that it will probably stay that way. And I hope, Professor, that some crisis will come about. Because the paradox is that the European Union only moves forward crisis after crisis. It's under the necessity of a crisis that uh, things change. Institutions, yeah. Uh, yeah. institutions, but also Germany. Uh, at present, you're absolutely right. They are extremely reluctant to move. Now, if we are in a couple of years in a new financial crisis, they will ha ask themselves again uh, if their sort of uh, shyness was... Uh, was called for, or whether a new move forward 
would, would be called for. And uh, it, it is, in a way, it's a bit sad, but when there is no crisis, you have a stable, you have a stable system, and it's only under crisis that people question it. There are concentric circles right now, Eurozone, EU, and some broader association with Europe. The question is whether these circles are stable or not. One view, this is the German view, is that the current degree of integration of the Eurozone is just enough. Mm. We cannot expect from us more. If you expect us more, we're not going to go there. The other view says this is an unstable disequilibrium because unless you have a full fiscal union, banking union, and political union, historically monetary unions collapse. And they collapse when there is a shock large enough, like another global recession or financial crisis is going to lead to the strains of the system. Now you're saying correctly uh, that the Germans are ex-ante, they're not going to go for more integration, but when there is a shock, there is a crisis like they did last time around. They went for the ESM, they went for MT, they went all this stuff. That's a possibility. There's also, however, the risk that the world has changed in Europe, and since there is a rise of populists, you don't have the same strong pro-European leaders, and even the German internal politics is going to become much more messy. The next time around, there's not going to be the political will in Germany to integrate more during the crisis. If that happens, Italy leaves, and if Italy leaves, other ugly things that can happen. At the European level, again, right now, is this a stable equilibrium? Some people say yes, but suppose that over time, we're not talking about disintegration like people leaving Europe like uh, Brexit, but suppose that Schengen eventually collapses and you have national border. Suppose that on a number of issues, Poland, Hungary, everybody else, pick and choose. I like this, I don't like that, and so on. Gradually, you don't have more integration, you don't have a collapse, but you have a gradual disintegration mm -hmm. of the European Union. And that's something of a process of slow motion that could also in the direction of making unstable the current European Union setup. So there are concentric circles. One of the concerns is they're not stable in the current format. But we'll see. Yeah, and, and, and just to somehow reinforce this argument, some of the elements of the concentric circle type of uh, setup are there, but do we have a common migration policy in, the, in Europe. Well, in theory, we've got no. the Dublin Treaty, but in, in practice, it doesn't That's work. Asylum. That's right? just asylum. Y yes, and, and still doesn't work. You said we have an association agreement with Ukraine. Okay, we try to have one. What happens? A country collapses and divided in two after invasion of whatever forces, right? So, um, can the UK leave easily? We have a referendum the day after is in the outer circle. No, it's a long process, complicated, it's going nowhere. Can Italy leave the Eurozone without leaving the EU? No. So it's very far from where we are now. Um, now we have a multi-speed Europe where, uh, where countries tend towards something that is concentric circle, but is still uh, not there. Clusters. Yes, we have groups of countries within a unified setting of the EU, uh, but here we are talking something much more dramatic. We are talking about a division of European blocs, as it was before. Mm. So Italy and Germany wouldn't belong to the same group, right? Um, I don't know whether you would need the passport again from going f to go from Italy to Germany. Maybe yes, but that's not where we are now. I'm not talking about short-term alliance on some specific thing. We are talking about the return of blocs, blocs that might be following different even you know, international policies, being more associated with Russia or with China as opposed to 
the US because of this Cold War we talked about. So there's a lot of political capital to be spent to go in that direction and prevent the, the, the collapse of Europe and disintegration into clusters as opposed to continuing this model through that we hope the crisis after crisis leads to a better outcome. But as Nouriel said, and here I would conclude, um, there might be the case that after repeated crisis, in, in the back of, of the mind of some policymakers, the idea will come that, sorry, it's not working. We tried it, didn't work. Plan A was a good one, didn't work, sorry, let's go to plan B. So, the question, um, question whether ultimately the institutions will be upheld, or whether the populists can just bide their time and, and um, you know, blame, blame others for, for the next crisis and then, and then use that as an opportunity to, to come to that disintegration uh, of Europe led by the four external forces who have a great interest in achieving that. And if you enjoyed that, you may be interested in listening to some of our other podcasts on cliffordchance.com or for more information on other business topics such as fintech, Brexit and global trade, have a look at our thought leadership pages and online hubs, Talking Tech and our Brexit hub. You've been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please stay tuned for more coming soon to cliffordchance.com.